The following is brought to you by Will Harris, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Welcome to Politics, Politics, Politics for July 13th, 2022. I'm your substitute host, Andrew Heaton, trying to fill in for the big, big shoes of our hero, Justin Robert Young. And I am delighted to be back hosting this show. As longtime listeners will recall, I used to host Politics, Politics, Politics back in the 80s when it was still just an AM talk radio station back before podcasts were invented. But around 87 or so, I threw my back out, something fierce, and I got onto some medications, and I kind of spiraled out for a few years, became a little unhinged, a little bit more fiery than was really warranted in retrospect. For example, I publicly accused Michael Dukakis of murder. In fact, this program was briefly called Dukakis Killed D.B. Cooper Talk Radio 580. Again, I really regret that whole period of my life. But understandably, given my chronic pain condition, I turned to medication and I became addicted to recreational antibiotics, which was horrible for multiple reasons. First, I went a little crazy. Second, it turns out that recreational antibiotics don't really even do anything to help your back. So that was all for nothing. Third, apparently there's no such thing as recreational antibiotics. And finally, fourth, if there were... They probably wouldn't be suppositories, as I had assumed. So that's all on me. Anyway, I got fired from hosting this program and from the radio station in 1988 when I got into a fist fight at the White House Correspondents' Dinner with Jim Lehrer. And after that, I got drunk and rather publicly propositioned Phyllis Schlafly. Again, dark times. I'm not proud of any of that. But I am delighted to be back, and I am very proud of Justin Robert Young and thrilled that the program is helmed by the likes of that extremely talented friend of mine who does a bang-up job hosting this program. And in complete seriousness, I want you to know, I'm saying this as a fellow listener who has been deputized to come on the show in his absence, Justin is the finest analyst around when it comes to the strategy and the artistry of politics. We should all be very glad that he's aimed his prodigious savant talent at entertaining and informing us instead of becoming a shady political operative. I think he would have been very good at that, but thank God he went into journalism. So I will do my best today to be his sidekick while he's gone and your butler in discussing the politics of politics. Today, we're going to talk about the latest developments in the January 6th hearings, Josh Hawley, transgenderism, and why the culture war is catnip for politicians, and it's only going to get more intense. And I will bring on Jeff Maurer, former writer from last week tonight and present writer of I Might Be Wrong, to discuss mounting rumors of presidential runs in 2024 from Jon Stewart and Tucker Carlson. Top of the show... January 6th hearings. This week, the hearings are a phenomenon of mounting tension. But alas, no cathartic release. The point of the committee is to determine if the incursion on the Capitol was directed by Donald Trump as part of his attempt to steal the election, or as it presently stands, as an unfortunate indirect side effect of his inflammatory rhetoric. Or if we want to skip over the civic ontology of all this, to just observe the political calculations, as is the want of this program, that a big public trial Democrats had hoped to make central to the midterm elections before Roe v. Wade, inflation, and the anemic attention span of these United States left the whole episode in the last season of our national sitcom. I tend to think both of these things simultaneously. They're very important. It was a big deal. But also the hearings, while being important, are a political calculation at the same time. Your mileage may vary. This week, 
The hearing is trying to establish that the riots were not spontaneous. The evidence presented is, being Donald Trump, the form of a tweet. On December 18th, Donald Trump met with crack legal team Sidney Powell, Michael Flynn, Mark Meadows, Rudy Giuliani, and the CEO of Overstock to discuss the election and available options to the Trump team. Later that same day, he tweeted out, Statistically impossible to have lost the 2020 election. Big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Be there. We'll be wild. The dots the committee would like us to connect are Trump meets with his team of crackerjack attorneys hoping to steal the election, then announces the protest on January 6th, which goes on to congeal at the White House before blubbering over to the Capitol to riot, take selfies, and fight cops. Maybe Trump knew they were going to riot. Perhaps he directed the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys to break windows, stir things up. Michael Flynn has direct Oath Keeper connections. Maybe Trump wanted to pressure, put violent pressure on the Capitol to unravel Mike Pence's backbone or distract Congress while he did something nefarious and maintained the presidency. Maybe. He might have. The problem here is that the latest proceedings by the committee constitute indirect circumstantial evidence. We can see these two things. They're not directly connected. It's possible they are, but we can't see that connection. Maybe he just wanted a big crowd of people on camera to add populist legitimacy to his claims. Maybe they reacted because of his rhetoric, but they weren't directed by him. It's indisputable that Trump was trying to overturn the election. And if you believe all of the various Republican judges, Republican attorney generals, and others who attested there was no evidence of malfeasance, then he did indeed try to steal the election, which I think is really the deeper, scarier, debilitating story than the January 6th incursion itself. But the showy thing, the thing that has lots of good visual imagery that has people fighting and screaming and violence in the hallowed halls of Congress, that's the Capitol incursion. And so far... There's no smoking gun that Trump orchestrated a violent coup on the Capitol. He was definitely organizing a legal coup, an electoral coup, but the violent coup on the Capitol itself, don't know, might have just been incendiary rhetoric that led to it. I get why the committee is trying to find that direct connection, because premeditated armed revolt is something most of us, even a lot of Trumpists, hopefully, would think poorly of, maybe be a little terrified of. But I also think it's unnecessary. If they find no evidence of a direct coordinated plot to storm the Capitol, Trump still incited the riot indirectly. Let's say, theoretically, this is theoretical, let's say I keep going on Twitter to accuse my friend Tom Merritt of killing kittens. Tom would never do that, by the way. He's the nicest man in America, and he's going to be your substitute host next week. But theoretically, let's say I had millions of followers and I kept going on screeds warning them that Tom Merritt was a kitten killer. He kills kittens for fun. He puts them on fish hooks. He's a horrible person. He's a dangerous person and he wants to murder your cat. Only tips 8% at restaurants. Horrible guy, Tom Merritt. And I drummed up this big violent mob that on its own went over to his house and tarred and feather him like olden mobs used to do. Even if I didn't explicitly say, hey, everybody, Tom Merritt, the kitten killer, lives at 2800 East Observatory Road in Los Angeles, California. Go over to his house and let's rough him up. Even if I didn't directly exhort people to nab him, but after weeks of angry bloviating, I finally convinced some hillbilly dressed like Chewbacca in an American flag bikini to assault him, I think you could make a good case in a court of law that I would be indirectly but legally responsible for the violence, let alone sued for libel. Also in this scenario, I am convinced I own Tom Merritt's house, or at least pretend to be convinced, and have dispatched Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell to try to convince a judge to give me the deed to Tom Merritt's house. Anyway, my point is, I don't think the committee needs a smoking gun to implicate Donald Trump in destabilizing civic malfeasance. But at the same time, I don't think it will matter. In the interest of journalistic objectivity, I am not going to tell you whether or not I think Trump actually won the election. I leave that to you, the listener, to decide for yourself if the P.T. Barnum of American politics was deprived of his rightful victory 
prompting him to lead a parade of meat goblins into the Capitol like the Pied Piper of Dukes. That's up to you to decide. I'm an objective journalist. I'm not going to tell you my opinion. But nobody in America at this point is still on the fence about Donald Trump. Remember Ken Bone? That really nice guy with a mustache from the second debate that like briefly, briefly made us all think there was hope in the United States? I bet you $20 he's firmed up his opinion on Donald Trump by now. He either likes the guy or he doesn't like the guy, but he's not neutral on him. There's not a lot of neutral people on Donald Trump by now. Likewise, I think pretty much everybody's made up their mind about what the January 6th riot and more broadly, Trump's attempt to overturn the election results really means. Either Donald Trump lost and knew he lost and undermined the legitimacy of our democratic process in hopes of subverting the lawful will of the republic, or his high-octane narcissism is so potent he literally cannot conceive of losing and, as commander-in-chief, lived in a world of utter delusion and ego untethered from reality, also not good, or he really did win. The election was rigged, and he was totally justified in trying to restore the rightful results from a stolen election. Interestingly, I find that everybody has kind of moved on from the immediate visceral nature of January 6th. Not forgotten it, mind you. We've just become emotionally fixated on new things. So unless the committee turns up something really juicy, like a handwritten note from Donald Trump that says, Send proud boys into Capitol with guns to steal election. P.S. Tom Merritt kills kittens. This is going to have zero impact on the midterms. And on Donald Trump's re-election campaign. Republicans that believe Trump or don't care about his electoral antics didn't tune into these committee hearings from the first place. They believe that it is a show trial and a political stunt. The people that think that this was horrible already think that Trump tried to steal the election. The only political ramification that's going to come out of these hearings is that it will secure Liz Cheney as the never-Trumper candidate in the 2024 Republican primaries for about a week until she's eaten alive by Ron DeSantis. Although this week, Ms. Cheney did bring up an interesting thing, which could develop into something, at least something actionable rather than vaguely circumstantial. According to Liz Cheney on Tuesday of this week, Quote, after our last hearing, President Trump tried to call a witness in our investigation, a witness you have not yet seen in these hearings. That person declined to answer or respond to President Trump's call and instead alerted their lawyer to the call. Their lawyer alerted us. End quote. If Trump attempted to influence testimony, that would constitute witness tampering. And it's possible, possible, the Justice Department could indict him on that. Although... I don't think it would. I don't think Merrick Garland would do that because indicting a former president, fanatically beloved by about half the country, on what would appear to them to be a legal technicality would very much look like guys in power are locking up a dissident leader and we are living in a banana republic and dissident leaders get locked up for political reasons and that would pour even more gasoline onto our dumpster fire of a political landscape. So in short, I'm glad the committee is convening, so there's an official record for posterity, but it's going to have no effect on immediate politics. politics, politics. Story two, Josh Hawley and a Berkeley law professor got into an argument in a Senate committee hearing this week. Let's play that clip. Professor Bridges, you said several times, you've used a phrase, I want to make sure I understand what you mean by it. You've referred to people with a capacity for pregnancy. Would that be women? Many women, cis women, have the capacity for pregnancy. Many cis women do not have the capacity for pregnancy. Um, there are also trans men who are capable of pregnancy, as well as non-binary people who are capable of pregnancy. So this isn't really a women's rights issue. It's a, it's, we can it's recognize a that this impacts women while also recognizing that it impacts other groups. Those things are not mutually exclusive, Senator Hawley. It goes on. You know the shtick. Berkeley professor has two nose rings and is politically correct to the point of exhaustion. Josh Hawley is the smug polo shirt frat guy trying to sell the beloved ski lodge in a 1990s film. Now, I'm not bringing this episode up to wade into the culture war and the essence of gender or the plight of transgender people. Rather, I want to point out why culture war issues as a genre are so popular amongst politicians, why they've been gaining in popularity over the last 10 years, and why they so frequently dominate talking points 
even in instances where the culture war battle has no direct connection to writing the law. I used to work on the Hill. When I was a Hill staffer, I was amazed to discover that most of the time when congressmen are giving thunderous speeches, they're addressing an empty house, an empty chamber. They're up there thundering, Mr. Speaker, I cannot believe the travesty of the Interstate Compact Corn Price Act of 19... Whatever the thing is. And the guy banging the gavel up there is the non-voting delegate from Guam. The committee chairman's off playing golf. There's nobody in there listening, certainly no active member of Congress. The only people in the room are their staff sitting behind them on camera to create the illusion of a full house. Because it's for show. It's a campaign tactic. It's politicking. They're not trying to change the mind of their colleagues. Their colleagues aren't there. They're trying to accrue sound bites of Congressman Wass's name going to Washington and giving them hell to the folks back home. Now, we're just talking tactically here. This is political tactics. We're not talking gender ontology. We're not talking about the essence of the debate. We're talking about the strategy surrounding the debate, the media and politicking of such debates. Presumably, Josh Hawley did not invite that professor to the committee hearing. That would be very trollish. I think she came under somebody else, and he availed himself to talk to her and to the opportunity of locking horns with her. He knew how to play this. Get into a fight, play it up, utilize it. In olden times, back during our tar and feathering days, politicians attempted to use consensus as a means of career propulsion. Now, they rely on provocation. Getting into fights in the Senate, reality TV-style clips that play well to the base, these are fuel for political aspirations. Modern politicians court controversy as a means of branding and attention-grabbing and know that getting along with their opponents might signal treason to the base, but pissing off their opponents provides free media. For politicians and pundits in clear partisan roles, and that's most, the way to get attention is specifically to pick fights with the other team and induce a pylon. That's why so many aspiring talking heads and freshman congressmen get really trollish on Twitter. They're intentionally trying to provoke the enemy team because all those hate clicks and snarky replies drive up their profile. They know what they're doing. The other team does the work of bumping up your Twitter profile. Our team sees the dog pile, hates the people doing it, and comes to the rescue. That increases your profile and your popularity with the people who matter, which for politicians is exclusively their party base. And by the way, for those of us that are outside of this matrix, when you hate tweet a response to Matt Gates or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you are playing into their media plan. Your anger and response are built into their media plan. They are hoping to piss you off, and they are expecting you to bump up their profile. So every time you slam dunk them on Twitter with a really good rejoinder you came up with in the bathroom, you're doing them a favor. You might as well just donate a dollar to their re-election campaign. They're hoping to get attention from you. Let's bring this back to the culture war. Culture war issues are particularly good for this kind of propulsive controversy for a variety of reasons. They're visceral. How you feel about the nature of gender or the plight of transgender women summons feelings, deep feelings. Feelings which are a lot harder to stoke about corn tariffs, procedural votes, whoever we're appointing to the Department of Slinkies. Culture War stuff makes good TV. And it's also very low labor for the people involved. You can get into a culture war fight without having to read a book or read a bill or look at a graph. That's why fiery radio hosts like to go off on culture war tangents. It saves them time and labor. They have several hours a day to fill. They can look at a newspaper headline and just go off. Same with politicians. Reading a bill requires time, attention, and coffee. When you wade into the culture war, you can just shoot from the hip. Politics ultimately solves one of two questions. Politics is all two questions. Who gets what stuff? And who are we? Who are we as a nation? They're both a part of politics. Political economy on the one side and issues like, is America a melting pot or a white Norman Rockwell painting? Do we want unfettered access to voting to make sure everybody's able to do it and maybe some people are going to sneak in and do some bad things? Or do we want to make it 
more difficult and lose some folks that aren't able to get out of work, but there's no malfeasance going on. Those are the questions that go on with a who are we conversation. They're both good discussions to be had. They're both necessary to have. But only one of them involves math. And you're going to find politicians and pundits will avoid having to do math. Finally, and this is why it's going to get bigger, culture war battles are a preferred arena for politicians and pundits to spar in because they're excellent at enfranchising the attention of stupid people. Everybody understands the battle lines and culture war stuff, and I think we're all drawn to it. I am. Everybody can get in on it. You don't have to understand economics, constitutional jurisprudence, or any of that boring stuff that involves reading. Culture war stuff can always rev up and appeal to everybody, including the lowest common denominator. And now that politics is superseding football and organized religion as America's constant common arena, politicians have to charge up people who formerly didn't care and only showed up on election day. So culture war battles are going to remain. They're going to increase. They're a tool in the political toolbox for the same reason that trash television proliferates on TV. It's cheap to produce, and it works. Friends and neighbors, I want to take a moment away from sermonizing to give you a friendly reminder that you can support this program and the work of Justin Robert Young at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Patronage starts at a mere $3 per week, which entitles you to multiple bonus episodes per week. This week, I'm doing the bonus episodes. Monday, for real, not making this up, I tell the story of the time I had tea with Steve Bannon and why I immediately didn't like him and also still don't like him. Tomorrow, I'm going to go over John Bolton's latest CNN interview with Jake Tapper and explain why I actually rather like John Bolton, who, and I'm again, I'm not making this up. This is not some funny bit. I used to hang out with him in the green room on occasion when I worked in television, and uh, I think he's a great guy, but I also think he should never hold any public office ever for fear of jump-starting a global war. That will be in the bonus episode. If you want to hear those stories, and they're delightful, they're way less sermonizing. They're me with my hair down, possibly drunk. Go to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. You'd really be helping me out. I think I mentioned earlier at the top of the program that I kind of flamed out as a political commentator a few years ago due to some unfortunate instances in my past involving Jim Lehrer, Michael Dukakis, and Phyllis Schlafly. So I'm thinking if, I don't know, a couple thousand of you sign up on Patreon today, well, that would really reflect well on me as a host, right? Like maybe I could get my old spot back on AM radio. So help a guy out. Go to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. I am joined today by a comedy writing buddy slash politico of mine, Jeff Maurer. He's been on this program before and uh, is the the writer of I Might Be Wrong newsletter, fantastic newsletter that I subscribe to. And uh, you're you're one of a very few people, Jeff, who is simultaneously funny and knowledgeable about politics. It's actually very difficult. I find that a lot of my comedian friends don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> and a lot of my people who do know what they're talking about aren't remotely funny. And you're able to do both of those things simultaneously. So my hat is off to you. Well, thank you very much. That's, you know, that's the goal, trying to do both with middling success. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you've had a foot in both worlds. I, I imagine you've probably talked to Justin about, uh, about that on this program before, that you, you worked for last week tonight, uh, but you were also uh, writing speeches for the EPA. So you've, you've been both in the federal government and you've been, uh, you, you have like knighthood status within comedy writing. <laughs> Uh, boy, if it's one of those knighthoods that you like buy online and it's not worth anything, then, then yes, <laughs> perhaps that's true. Uh, yeah, Justin and I have talked about how I'm not really funny enough to make it as a comic and not really smart enough to make it as a pundit. But if you, if you need, uh, something that's co- sort of a dual use thing, then that's, that's my lane. That's my time to shine. Well, I'm glad you have just enough different <laughs> politics than me that we're not competing because that is exactly what I'm shooting for in life. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, uh, we we were chatting the other day, and, and you brought up that there are rumblings within Democratic politicos to recruit John Stewart to run for president. Um, do you it's first of all? Do you think that this is a serious thing? Uh, he he is denying that he's even contemplating it, but then again, so is like the governor of Virginia. 
Uh, yeah. So I, it's hard for me to parse out when people are just demurring or when they're really doing it. Um, yeah. Is there a possibility that we would ever elect a celebrity, like a game show host or something, president? <laughs> well, that I mean, that question I can answer very easily. Yes, yes. That's or like an actor. Certainly possible. <laughs> or an actor, I know, yeah. Uh, some would say it's possible. Um, mm -hmm. He gets asked about it, and you're right, that when he gets asked about it, it's kind of, you know, no, no, I, I don't want to do that. And, you know, of course, being asked about whether you're running for president is one of those weird things where, you know, the person denies it and then you go, aha, gotcha. Yeah. 10-4, mm -hmm. buddy. It's like everyone who's running for president denies it. So when people who are not running for president deny it, it really sounds like they're running for president. And I don't know which right. category he's in. Uh, you said rumblings in Democratic circles that he might run. I don't know. There, there was a Politico article this week. Does that constitute rumblings? Yeah, perhaps. Like I said, he gets asked about it. Andrew Yang well, asked for, me. For, for, I, I was on record, Andrew Yang's I, I, podcast. You were? And, um, wow, nice. Andrew, I, yeah, I was. And um, yeah. no, I do like a very popular podcast sometimes, you know, in addition to this one. Yeah. I kid. And yeah, uh, yeah. I, um, he asked me, is there a comedian you think should run for a higher office? And I interpreted that as asking me, do you think John Stewart should run for higher office. And and I, I I actually said Al Franken. I thought Al Franken should run for higher office because he's done it and won. And I thought he was pretty good. And I think that uh that case should probably be reopened. Hmm. Hmm. Um I I feel like that has been kind of a fever dream uh of John Stewart fans, him running for office for a very long time now. There was a not very good film uh from Robin Williams that came out called Man of the Year, I think in yep. two thousand and five. Um, which was just, it. It, that was kind of the beginning of the, the ascent of John Stewart. He was very much in his stride at that time. It was, it was, uh, still during the Bush years and it was, it was basically Hollywood going, wouldn't it be great if John Stewart ran for president? And, yeah. uh, now, meanwhile, we have a comedian actor who is president of Ukraine. And so I feel like the constellations are aligning more to where that would make sense to more people. Um, you're, you're saying, uh, um. Uh, Al Franken would be somebody that you would potentially support. What about John Stewart? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, which is weird for me to say okay. because, first of all, because I'm I'm on the left. I always describe myself as an Obama liberal. Thank God there is still a two word phrase that describes what I am. I'm an Obama liberal, um, mm -hmm. and uh, as you might guess, of an Obama liberal, I loved the John Stewart era Daily Show. I mean, that show was mm -hmm. enormous to me. I I. Watched almost every single episode. I loved it to death. It's fair to say that's one of the main reasons I got into late night. And then, of course, I got hired on a show hosted by a guy from The Daily Show. So in an indirect way, he's kind of responsible for my career. Uh, yeah. And if you asked me 10 years ago if I'd be excited for him to run, I don't know. I'm not totally sold on the comedian to, to high-level politician. I mean, you know, it's not mayor of, uh, you know... We reserve that for game show hosts. You really need to have the ability to to apprentice people in order to to ex it hold executive office. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But anyway, if it's you know mayor of Butlick, Arkansas, then perhaps. But president is a coming in at an awfully high level, and I have seen his Apple TV show, and that causes me to feel very confident saying no. I do not want this person to run for president. Okay, well, so I, I want you to elaborate on that a little bit in that um, I would not, I don't typically vote for president based on how funny I think the person is. Uh, I that That is fairly Good. low down in my, Good. and in fact, I'll say Me from a, com a comedian perspective, I would prefer <laughs> the president not be funny because I need the ability to exaggerate what the president's doing. If the president's yeah. like whacking golf balls at Rosie O'Donnell and shouting something about Mexico, like, I don't know where to go with that. Yeah. Um, with, with John Stewart, I've only seen one episode of, of John Stewart's new show. And, um, my concern would really be from, from a, a governmental perspective, is he doing actual research and is he being earnest with it? Or is he just doing boilerplate stuff? Because like, like, like I'll say like, like, okay. Yeah. Cause like, like, so like last, last week tonight that you were writing for, I didn't always agree yeah. with the, the outcome you guys had. Like, uh, like yeah, I, I think we're probably on opposite <laughs> sides of, <laughs> <laughs> we're we're probably like like I'll open up this kettle of worms uh of oh gosh not open internet I can't remember the, even the phrase anymore but uh Agit Pai was the head of the FCC and we were fighting about that for oh a while. sure and was like, it net neutrality 
That's it. Net neutrality, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, which, which is, as you can see, having forgotten the phrase, I'm, I'm less vested in this <laughs> than I used to be. Uh, I, I, I had a different opinion than than uh, uh, than than last week tonight on that one, but I was very impressed with the research they did. Like, very, very well, rarely do it, did I watch that show and go, "Oh, they 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 pulled a punch." Occasionally. But for the most part, though, I felt like that there was really good research and an ability to take complex topics and make it entertaining. And I disagreed with the outcome sometimes, but as a comedian, I was both impressed with the humor and I was impressed with taking something like civil asset forfeiture and making it entertaining yeah. to people. Well, thanks. It, it, I, I think there are times we definitely did that. And I also think there are times we really felt short and mm -hmm. it ended up being a mixed bag. You, you mentioned net neutrality. I agree. Net neutrality, I, I thought was a good piece. That one, I actually do remember uh, agreeing with the conclusion. Um, though I like you would need to read up on that. Cause that was eight years ago. Cause that was season one. That was 2014. That was like right. episode yeah. nine or something like that. And, uh, yeah, I do feel that we were pretty good early on and then we kind of lost our way a bit as I was, I, I, I would think that in 2020, I would, anyway. I would be worried that a, a show predicated on long form, um, deep evergreen policy issues would would kind of always run the risk of getting sucked into um getting sucked into day-to-day -day stuff just because you'd have a conveyor belt and and so making it yeah. more political and less policy oriented that would be what i would be on the lookout for yeah well I, I, and i think i will give john credit for not getting sucked too much into the news cycle generally speaking which was of course a constant concern in the trump era you could have just done trump mm -hmm. Every single yeah. minute of every single. A lot of comedy happens. shows did just Trump did. all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I will give John credit for resisting that poll. And, you know, I was I was there. I can tell you that poll is strong uh, sometimes. But then, you know, there are other polls, other temptations. Uh, you say in your perception, we weren't pulling punches. There are times I definitely felt we were pulling punches. It's like you don't want to say that'll. Say stuff that'll piss off your audience too much, right? You, oh yeah. Uh, for the record, occasionally there were occasional times where I was like, ah, but we've, let, let, let we've me rephrase this. I did not think it was schlocky. I thought it had <laughs> okay. an orientation and I thought it worked very hard at the research. If, if I'd been, if I'd been a prosecutor, I would have pointed out some holes in it. Yeah. Uh, but, but I digress with, with John Stewart, you were critical of his new show. Does this new show make you less like, would you just be, would you take the position Comedian shouldn't be president, and and that's it. Or is it this show specifically where you're like, no, John Stewart shouldn't be president? It's the latter. It's having watched this okay. show, I think this man should not be president. Uh, I, I comedians, sure. I mean, you pointed out Zelensky. You know, Zelensky, obviously faced with a crisis, has performed extraordinarily well. I don't think the logical conclusion of that is that oh, therefore. Every comedian would make a good president. And um, I think we can point to Beppe Grillo in uh, Italy. People did, I mean, prime minister, but people did not really uh, like his performance. Wait, was he a comedian? That much. He was, yeah. Yeah. He was like a okay. radio guy, like uh, a shock he, he, kind of guy. Okay, yeah. Um, Ignominious uh, tenure as, uh, as prime minister. So, yeah, it doesn't work every single time. Well, My he's the only on, colorful... Bad politician Italy's had in the last twenty years. They've got a pretty he's good the, record. He's the only. He's the only one. They normally. It's just every single yeah. time they come up with a winner. So yeah, who's to say what went wrong in Italy that one time? Well, so uh, like with, with Stuart, then are, like is it is, is it that he's just not being as funny anymore? Or did, like is he entered an echo chamber and that's the the dangerous part? Or what do you what do you reckon? Yes, I think he's echo, okay. entered an echo chamber and is not yeah sharp anymore. You got to be careful about that. I like that is. Um, that is a real hazard that can happen. And, and when, when you, oh, yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're seeing that across uh, the United States of just people, you know, forming communities and friendships only with other people that they agree with. There's, there's good data that when you do that, you create these kind of feedback loops where um, mm -hmm. I, I, I talked to Cass Sunstein a couple of years ago and he, he had these good metrics that he was going through of, let's say you've got an appellate court and you've got um, two uh, conservative judges and one progressive judge. The two conservative judges can outrule the progressive judge. This is like they mathematically they have the ability to do that. Uh, they, but all the same, just the the process of conferencing with a different viewpoint tends to blot out the dumber, extreme opinions of people, or at least allow them to see the blind spots they've got, and and you arrive at a more at least with appellate courts a more nuanced, moderate position that's stronger by by most uh, by most accounts, and. Um, yeah. They do tests where you get three Republicans and three Democrats to go into a room and talk about minimum wage, 
they all maintain their position when they leave, but it but it's more nuanced. Whereas if you bring in six yeah. Democrats or six Republicans, they both go harder, whatever direction. Like if the, if the Democrats came in wanting yeah. $7 an hour, now they want 20. Uh, and if the Republicans came in, you know, wanting $7 an hour, now they want, I don't know, tanks or something like, but it goes the other direction. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I would I would be slightly worried about that if he were he were just insulating himself with with uh, folks that he already agreed with. And he was kind of going into a red shift Democratic move. Yeah, well, I think if you if red you shift in an astrological in, sense there and <laughs> that he is he is moving farther away from the galaxy, you mean? Exactly. Um, yes. Thank okay. you. I just had to clarify Understood. that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Not not becoming more conservative because that would not be accurate. Right. Um, it does not appear to be happening. Yeah. <laughs> I think if you work in TV or if you work in media generally, you understand what you called a feedback loop, which I think is the exact right phrase because that's exactly what it is. And, you know, I was in this position when I was writing for a comedy show that had a, a left-wing viewpoint, which is also, by the way, my viewpoint. And also, I think it's totally fine to have opinion journalism. Uh, not everything has to be, you know, centric. No, it's like you can have opinion journalism. That's all good. You worked at Fox News at one point. I, I'll tell you, I feel this pressure now writing a blog, writing a sub stack, this feedback loop that you have with the audience for people who aren't in the feedback loop, at least as a content creator, here's how it goes. You do something and your audience goes, hey, we really like that. And then you have pressure to just do it more and more and more. And then conversely, yeah. if you do something and it turns people off, you lose viewers, you lose readers, you learn, oh, I shouldn't do that anymore. So it's it's very tempting to just give people more of what they what they like. It, mm -hmm. Readers of my blog know I never give anyone what they like, but give people what they are asking for. And that can quickly become just reinforcing the views they already have. Hey, what do you already believe? OK, well, here is a story that is consistent with that view narratives. It's all about giving people narratives that are consistent with a view. And it's it's toxic. And I think it leads to garbage. And by the way, one of the reasons I loved Jon Stewart's Daily Show in the 2000s and early 2010s is because he was really taking it to Fox News, which, in my opinion, was, you know, the worst at this. They were just presenting one side of the story. It was incredibly slanted. Of course, not anything you did, Andrew, but other people. No, it was, there, uh, yeah. It's just a constant pressure if you work in media. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and I think that we, we see that same effect electorally going on. Uh, like, like, um, we, we've spoken in the past about the exhausted majority or the, the kind of gulf between the extremist wings of both parties. And I think that that feedback loop is built into the structural mechanisms of democracy at the moment, where, because we have first past the post primaries, uh, it's whoever has the, the highest percentage of votes rather than ranked choice voting or something like that, that tends to better, um, better represent the the broad consensus of the people. Plus, we have closed primaries in a lot of states. Uh, it, it does vary from state to state. But if you are in Oklahoma, where I'm from, and you are a Republican incumbent, you know you don't have to worry about a Democrat knocking you out in the general election. That's not going to happen yeah. ever. But what you do have to keep your eyes on is if you're seen fo photographed shaking hands with a Democrat on Capitol Hill, and then somebody back home in the district goes, that guy's a traitor. He's a traitor. He shook hands with a Democrat. He's not sufficiently yeah. Republican. So you have zero incentives to ever be operating for moderates, independents, or any Democrats in your district. You have all of your political incentives aligned towards red meat, towards the conservatives. And this phenomenon happens with progressives as well. It, it tends yeah. to be the, the system that we currently have pushes candidates to go extreme in either direction. And it rewards nobody for ever doing compromise across the aisle, bipartisan stuff. Yeah, yeah, and that's sort of the electoral pressure pushing us towards the polls. I feel that there's also a social pressure, you know, coming from the fracturing of media. You know, back in the day, it was your nightly news was ABC, NBC, or CBS, and they were all basically doing the same thing. And they were all trying to get that meaty center of the market because that's where the eyeballs were. But now that things are fractured and you've got Fox and MSNBC, and then, of course, you know, uh, with blogs and Twitter and Facebook, social media, et cetera, there's sort of an infinite fracturing. You can kind of make a career only playing to those who hold specifically your view. You know, I th an influential book on me was uh, Ezra Klein's Why We're Polarized. And he runs through all uh -huh. these different ways that we're polarized. And it really does seem like, 
like all the all the potential winds are blowing in the same direction and they're all blowing us towards being polarized. So you talked about the electoral part of that. I talked about yeah. the media part of that. It's like, yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of things blowing us apart. And uh, I can't say I know what the solution to that is. Yeah, unfortunately, I, I don't know that there's any um, quick silver bullet on any of that. Like, uh, I've not read that book. I, I would like to. Um, I'm, I'm working on a book on tribalism and on groupthink because I thought I should write a book mm. three or four years late to what everybody else has already <laughs> written about. That seems like a really good career tactic uh, for me uh, and, and have, have mm. largely had that position from all the publishers I've reached out to. Uh, like, like, I think um, a large part of it is, I, I think a lot of it's electoral in terms of politics, but in terms of the other things, I, 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 I'm kind of more of a Robert Putnam type guy. And I think that America's increasingly become alienated and has become kind of um, individualized where instead of, you know, going to the Rotary Club meeting or church or the Garden Club or whatever the thing is, people are increasingly staying at home, watching TV and, uh, yeah. and, and creating online communities of like-minded people. And uh, I think in the absence of those relationships that would cross various cultural and political barriers, we don't meet those people anymore. And so they become inhuman to us. Uh, we, we, I, I, I say this as a secular guy. I think mm -hmm. 30 years ago, if you went to Catholic church, you'd probably meet Republicans and Democrats. And you would, uh, on some level, believe that to be secondary to your Catholic identity. That, uh, you know, we're all children of God and, and that guy's a subdeacon and I'm, I'm an altar altar guy. I don't know Catholic stuff. I'm an altar guy in the Catholic church. <laughs> altar guy. You know, he's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. That's, that's he's he's a Republican, but he's, <laughs> he's, a, he's a good subject. And, he, and like, I, like, whereas now I think we don't really have those uh, interconnecting relationships as much. And so people just don't meet other folks that they disagree with. And I, I think um, monoculture really breeds contempt. In my experience, I find that the most insufferable Republicans are ones who live in completely red counties and don't know a Democrat and think Democrats are actively trying to ruin America for sport and, mm -hmm. and are like have all these conspiracy theories. And then meanwhile, like I find that when I'm in bright blue cities, I can talk to people that have never met a Republican. And then I, yeah. I, I am apparently the next best thing. So I get all of their ire and, <laughs> uh, and, and they also have these cartoons and things. Whereas you meet somebody who's like uncle, they disagree with, they love him, they like him, but they think he's full of crap. Those people are mm -hmm. fun to talk to because they can like humanize people that they disagree with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm always, I, I do worry about bubbles and I do worry about groupthink and you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, right now I am in Hollywood, California. Who was the last uh -huh. Republican I interacted with? I don't know. Um, you can go a long time in this area or on the Upper West Side of New York where I used to be without encountering a Republican, but I'm loath to criticize, you know, people for self-sorting because like i've i've done it and you know I'm, I'm here for work as i was with the upper west side but uh -huh. you know i'm certainly not gonna you know up stakes and uh intentionally move around people who see the world very differently than me. i'm not gonna camp out with you know some far-right militia on the upper peninsula <laughs> upper peninsula of michigan <laughs> or something to make a point so um the way I look at it is, yeah, sorting, you know, going where jobs are, or just where, for lack of a better term, we feel at home, uh, is it's something we all do, but we should recognize that it is kind of polarizing us. And we should probably also recognize that uh, to the extent that interactions are now online, electronic, not face-to-face, -face, that does dehumanize things. And yeah. simply put, make it a lot easier to be an asshole. Because yes, you actually so. have to look at the person and you can also just like say something shitty and then be gone and never have to respond to it. So that's certainly not and, and, and uh, if you're saying helping it, like, civility. Like if, if theoretically, if you and I are talking, if we're arguing with each other on Twitter, we're not really talking to each other. We're performing for our teams. And, yeah, exactly. and that's going to affect how we're doing things because it, it's like you're, you're just a punching bag in that case. Uh, by the way, I think you're at a particularly interesting place politically for Hollywood because uh, I've, I've only lived there briefly and it was during the pandemic. So, you know, obviously this is an outlier situation, but uh, like I'm, I'm a big fan of Frasier. And um, <laughs> I, I mentioned like, oh, I, I would love to meet Kelsey Grammer. I, I happened to mention this one time to a, uh, a radio host named Glenn Beck. And uh, Glenn, Glenn Beck went, oh, uh, Hollywood Republicans are crazy. 
You're just. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait, for by your okay, and but I I kind of get it now because if you're like the one out of four hundred Republicans in Hollywood, you're getting mm. dunked on so much that you're angry, like in a way that doesn't happen. <laughs> like, um, so for uh, San Francisco, San Francisco, ninety seven percent of the people in San Francisco that voted voted for Biden. Conversely, Austin, wow. which is still a blue 90, city, seventy five percent of the people. Yeah, so so it's monoculture in San Francisco, right? Yeah. Um, Austin, seventy-five uh, percent voted for Biden, about a quarter voted for Trump. So it still went very heavily for Biden. But you, you're going to occasionally run into somebody that voted for Trump, and and so you're just a little bit less uh, less intense in in um, uh, broadcasting your vitriol. And, and so I think the Republicans in Hollywood, like I, I don't when when you and I were doing comedy back in D.C., mm-hmm. this is pre-Trump. I found that we, when we were doing like electoral dysfunction, um, that the Republicans were just real quiet because they knew they were in enemy territory. Hmm. They were like all Romney voters, and they kind of sit in the back, just be like, "Please don't call on me. I'm just here with my wife. I just don't want to. Have, I just want to have a fun evening." But they, yeah. uh, like, like they kind of kept their heads down. Whereas I think Hollywood kind of like catalyzes the Republicans because they're just they're so in it all the time <laughs> that it makes them go uh, just it makes them angry. Um, and then on the yeah, flip side I, of the coin. I, I went on a couple of dates when I was in Hollywood during the pandemic, like towards the tail end when you go outside and that kind of thing. And both mm-hmm. times, both people who were Democrats who voted for Obama and were scheduled to vote for Biden would at some point bring up political correctness. And then they would lean forward, like look around and go, I think this has gone a bit far. And I'd be mm-hmm. like, well, you're, we're in your Vatican. You're, you should be allowed to talk. <laughs> like I'm the outsider here. I'm the one that has to divide my P's and Q's. So like, yeah, I think you're in an interesting place. Well, that I think that I think is actually uh, an extraordinarily common view among people on the left that um, mm-hmm. some of, you know, we, we always struggle for terminology in this area. Like wokeness is a phrase people use. Yeah. I like religious left because I think it describes what it is. Uh, yeah. A lot of people think that's gone. I, a lot of people think it's gone too far because, look, if you're on Twitter and you find the nuttiest of the nutty, it's like, yeah, that person is pretty damn nutty. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's a pretty Man. common view. But you know what? We're, we're going to wrap up in a moment, but I do want to bring up one more uh, celebrity talking head that is being uh, considered for a presidential run, and that's Tucker Carlson on the other mm-hmm. side of this. Uh, Tucker is uh, a, uh, I think, the most watched, not only uh, television host on Fox, but in the history of America is the, the data that I just read. Um, wow. Anybody that wants to get out of their echo chamber and understand what Republicans are doing, he's probably the guy to watch. Uh, he, he is kind of getting the same thing of getting floated around. However, he was on a a show recently and likewise, uh, didn't just demure, but was, was outright. I don't want to do that. Um, I, I'm a talk show host. I don't think I should be president. Uh, and he, he did it with such veracity that I'm inclined to think that is the case. But then again, um, I don't know. There's a lot of ego there and, uh, I, I could, I, I don't know. Do you, do you think there's much chance he would run? I don't know. I'm I'm sure not in his head. I have watched his show a couple times for my blog. When he went to Hungary, I watched those shows and wrote about it. And uh-huh. uh, I watched. <laughs> Wait, can I can I pause you? Did, did you watch them in their entirety, or were you watching clips? Uh, I I didn't watch every minute of every episode. I watched most of the Hungary episodes. Yeah. Okay. No, I just I, I asked. This is one, one of the, the one of the problems. <laughs> One of the problems that I have trying to assess Tucker Carlson is that I will any any public figure people like to take um, to to take fifteen seconds of their program that looks horrible and then show it and then dunk on it and and I I'm like well yeah. it's not really fair to do you need to see it in context and if you watch a twenty six minute episode and you're like I hate that guy then it's like yeah. indeed you do. Well, it wasn't. Yeah, no, I watched I watched the thing and it was uh, rough stuff. I'll tell you that much. I also watched yeah. Patriot Purge. I had to become a member of Fox Nation. <laughs> and I paid, right. Oh, wow. I, paid, I think wow. a, a okay. dollar. I sent a dollar to Fox Nation so I could watch. Patriot was was that as was that as horrible? I mean, like like Joda Goldberg broke off relations with Fox News over that. It like was, that was I, I, I didn't watch it. But reading reading reviews of it, which, again, had a had a left leaning tilt. Um the reviews I read of it were like, this is straight up conspiracy theory yeah. bilge that is in like, like outright saying the, the uh, January 11th insurrection was a red flag operation for, from Democrats so that they could crack down on Patriots and take their guns. Like, was it actually that? Yes, it was that bad. 
It was it was Jesus. it was that bad. And yes, it was 100% just conspiracy theory garbage and also d- deeply stupid, I have to say. Conspiracy theories that you should be able to see through if you just you don't even have to actually know anything. You just need to like be able to ask yourself logically, does that make sense? <laughs> there are things that's mm-hmm. like would that be the smart thing to do? Would you know? Does the person you're yeah, George, saying, George W. Bush is a complete moron, and he pulled off nine eleven? And you're like, yeah, well, right. how does that work exactly? <laughs> He's that much of a dithering yeah. idiot. Where uh, like, been, there's like I, Chris Chris Bliss, who's a really funny comedian. I don't know if you know him. He he had this joke back during the Obama years of like people would say like Obama is the literal antichrist. He's the antichrist. And he's not prepared for office. He's only been a senator for three months. And Chris Bliss would be like, hey, I got to tell you, if he's the Antichrist, he's definitely prepared for office. Like, you can't really yeah, levy charges of, you know, being greed uh, if he's yeah. the Antichrist. Well, it's like they also they also went after him for being the imperial president. And then if he wasn't that, then he was weak. He was weak and feckless. It's like, well, which is it? I, I think they maybe just didn't like the guy. That's what I think. Yeah. But, uh, well, I, I just looked up my the article that I wrote about Patriot Purge. Uh, which is on my Substack, which is completely free, I should mention. It's called I Might Be Wrong. Uh, I'm doing it weekly now that I'm working in television again. But um, the article is called Let's Watch Tucker Carlson's Patriot Purge and Wonder Just How Dumb Things Can Get. Subheading on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being extremely dumb. So I think just that title and subheading uh, tells you what I thought of it. It was really bad. But, President, do I, I don't... I honestly no don't no I I don't think he would run because I think he's like got his gig and it's working fine for yeah. him so if it ain't broke don't fix it uh, I will say that I hope he does not run because yeah you know what people are responding to with both Tucker Carlson and John Stewart is these are figures who number one are comfortable in front of a camera and number two have already demonstrated that they can build an audience people like them so I think that's why their names get tossed around yeah. I think you're right about that. And while I think that is more relevant to getting elected now, like it used to be, you mm-hmm. needed to have executive experience to be elected president. It was like, oh, a, a senator versus a governor. Well, the governor's going to win because people are thinking about the ability of the president to execute the jobs of the office. Whereas now the, the presidency is much, much more of a, a psyops operation. And so in that capacity, John Stewart and Tucker Carlson would, would both have a, a leg up in their ability to do that. Although I'll say that I am I am disheartened by the general like, uh, particularly when Trump was in office, uh, people would go, "Well, we ought to get Oprah to run," and I was like, yeah. "I just this does not I don't think it's a good idea to go. We don't like the game show president, so let's find um, a History Channel host to run against him." I was I would rather I would I would yeah. rather you find a competent leader uh, and have yeah. them do it and and have a little bit of glam on them. I think I think a president, and this is by the way going to be part of the article that I'm writing about this topic that is going to go up this week. Um, I think a president should know stuff. I think mm-hmm. you can be, you can be a good person with uh, you know, a good heart and a brain and you're intelligent and still not be ready to be president because you don't know enough stuff. You have yeah. to know stuff. That is one of my gigantic knocks on Trump. I mean, I have obviously no end of knocks on Trump, but he didn't know anything. You got to know not to, for example, hire Peter Navarro, who I'm, I consider to be a complete crank of an economist. You have to know what you're doing. You have to ha- know how the world works, know basics about economics, foreign policy, history, constitutional law. It's like you have to know that stuff. And if that isn't in your brain, quite frankly, I'm not interested in you, no matter how smart you are otherwise. I concur. And I mean, like it goes with, with a lot of professions, like, um, uh, if you were a, ah, here's one, the Pope seems like a really good dude based on what I've heard. He's like the, he carries his own bags when he's coming in and out of the hotel. He, mm-hmm. he was, he was, uh, salsa dancing in Argentina. Like he seems like a cool guy. He see, he seems like a very earnest guy, the kind of guy yeah. I would want to be Pope. I hate it when he <laughs> talks about economics because it's very clear. Sure. He doesn't know anything about economics. And I'm like the, the fact, like, the fact that he knows stuff about theology and is a good guy does not automatically mean he understands economics, which is a counterintuitive art form that you have to learn stuff yeah. about. It is not something that you just look at things and go, well, I naturally feel like it, it is not a, a visceral feeling based 
um, field. And and there are yeah, lots of things not. like that. You you might be a great uh, seismologist and you're weighing in on another field that you don't know anything about. And I'm like, okay, well, you're a smart guy, but unless you've got the actual data background in that, it's not that relevant. Yeah, it, it, this happens all the time. I don't know anything about chemistry. I don't know anything about physics, really. My wife did neuroscience in college, so we watched Jeopardy, and she gets all the questions about the brain, or actually even, you know, the human body generally, and, like, I'm completely useless in those categories. I don't know that stuff. People feel very comfortable admitting the type of thing that I just admitted. Yeah, I don't know chemistry. That's no problem, because yeah. it's not part of the political sphere. For some reason, people don't really feel comfortable saying, look, I just don't understand economics. It's, as you, as you said, it's not intuitive, and it is not. Hmm. So, but they don't feel comfortable saying, I just don't, I don't get the basics. I've never, I didn't ever take a class on it. I don't really know it very much because it's one of the things you're supposed to talk about when you're talking about politics. I think that's one of the reasons you get so much crackpot economics, which is, I mean, we started this conversation with John Stewart. I just watched a podcast with him nodding along to two modern monetary theory people. And it's like, Jesus, John. Ah. he kept... He kept he kept saying, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. It's like, yeah, but you know so little that you don't know the flaws in these people's arguments and you don't know that you that you should <laughs> be a thousand times more I, you know, about you know what, I'll le- than he was. I'll at least give him credit. While I am not a monetary modern a modern monetary uh a theorist uh, type guy, I'm much more of like um Old guys in three-piece suits from the Chicago School of Business, circa 1980. <laughs> yeah, you're like, a that's about guy, my right. I'm more of a Hayek guy, yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely Friedman, yeah. Thomas, uh, yeah, Friedman. How about Thomas Sowell and, and Milton Friedman are definitely my my two uh, economic lodestars. Um, yeah. At least he brought on somebody that had a degree in it. One of, one of the things that I find very irritating right now, and I'm just I'm I'm kind of just shutting these conversations down. I I don't ever want to get into another economic argument with somebody who's never read a book on economics. Um, <laughs> like it could be literally, it could be Thomas Piketty. It could be, you can pick somebody that I disagree with, but if you don't know basic terminology, then we're, we're just, we're just, uh, uh, spouting yeah. effluvium point? and, and right. Yeah. And I don't like, so let's talk about something that we both have knowledge in. Uh, and, yeah. uh, it's okay to admit well, that we um, don't, we, we've all got like our areas that we, I won't say expertise, but like know something about, and then our areas that we don't, and it's yeah. fine. It's all fine. But, uh, yeah. not everyone should be president. <laughs> no. And while, while I think I would, enjoy, I will say it would be an amazing presidential debate of John Stewart versus Tucker Carlson. That would be an amazing debate to watch. That'd be a good I would debate. enjoy that yeah. for the, for the sheer, uh, well, shock and awed humor of it. I think that's part but of the reason why people my want this because it's a replay of that, uh, crossfire moment from 18 years ago where John Stewart card called mm-hmm. Tucker Carlson a dick. I think people want to see <laughs> it would just be that. Is he going to call him a dick again? And I think he would. <laughs> yes, I think so too. All right, final question for you. Let's okay. say that uh, President Biden decides to retire at the end of this term. He does not run for re-election, and okay. that uh, D- Donald Trump likewise decides he does not want to run again. Who would your preferred Democrat and Republican candidates be at this time? Okay, well, I can answer the Republican one very easily, although I'm not going to give you a name. Anybody who will accept the results of the election. For the first time in my <laughs> okay. life, I really have a rooting interest in the Republican primary. I've always just, because I, look, I know I'm not going to end up voting for that candidate. I always just watch it as a curio. This time, there's going to be somebody who I am going to want to win, and that is going to be the person that makes me think if they lose, they will accept the results of the election. And I really mean that, even if. I'm not going to do the thing where I try to game it out. It's like, okay, this person's an authoritarian, but I think they'll lose. Like, no, I'm not playing that game. I just want someone who will accept the results of the election. We know that's not Trump. DeSantis, yeah. I would like to hear some some clear language on that topic, uh, but I'm going to support anybody. Not that I can, not that I'm going to vote in that primary, but I will root hard for anyone who will accept the results of the election. That is my threshold. I think everyone has to clear. Okay. On the Democratic side, oh shit, man! I don't know. God damn it! Like I don't want to. It's this is such a fucking nightmare because Biden, obviously, his age is a big issue, and Kamala Harris, who I I once really liked in 20, 
2020, like, I was there to be had. I could have gotten on the Kamala bandwagon and then Hisar campaign, and I was like, no, thank you. And I think yeah. a lot of people feel that way. And she could, I mean, but the, the, it's still possible she could write the ship, but she really needs to show something, you know, specifically some some gravitas and some principle. I, gravitas is maybe unfair, because she's got that prosecu prosecutorial thing, but she doesn't impress me as a policy thinker, so I want to see that. Yeah. And I want to see, like I said, some principles, some idea that, okay, you are you are a leader. You are not just going to blow, be blown wherever the Democratic Party blows you. And then beyond that, man, I don't know. I like Pete Buttigieg a lot. I like Pete Buttigieg. I don't know if he can win, but I like him. I mean, he would definitely be a contender. Uh, we're, we're the we've primary to open up. And it, it seems that there's been this kind of behind the scenes Cold War between Buttigieg and Kamala Harris for just that contingency. Um, yeah. So I think I think he'd be on the stage in the event that that had happened. Uh, I, I sh I'm I'm likewise not impressed with Kamala Harris. I think Kamala Harris is, I would say, reliably progressive if it is benefiting her career at the moment. So I do yeah. think she I don't think she's entirely feckless, but I I think that she is an opportunist. Which by the way I would say of most politicians. Sure. And uh, I I when she dropped out and uh, of, of the presidential race. Um, there wasn't like a, a policy gap. Like no one was saying, well, now no one's talking about X policy. It was all about, well, now there's not a black lady running. And I was like, while true, the, the fact that no one has something that she's contributing intellectually or policy wise would indicate that she doesn't have anything that, that we're really missing out on. I'd say in my end, I, I liked Pete Buttigieg, um, in the primaries. Uh, I, I saw him at, um, I went to one of his rallies in New Hampshire and I, I, he, he's lost some points with me by virtue of just being like a, a factory made politician model. Like it was so slick and, and, yeah. and cookie People cutter. often see him as too rehearsed. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, he lost me a little bit on that. I'm surprised nobody's talking about Jared Polis. Cause I really like that. Well, I, I'm not surprised that someone I like, no one's talking about. I'm surprised <laughs> other people don't like Jared Polis. Jared Polis is the governor of Colorado. Uh, he was on yeah. like, a, as a Democrat, he was on the house. I want to say the it was either the Freedom Caucus or the Liberty Caucus. I can't remember the differences between, but he was on one of them that like Justin Amash was on. He has, um, he, he's a, a, a pro-market guy, but he's a Democrat. He's gay. He's got kids. Uh, like, I just, I, I feel like, like none of my free market sensibilities go into high alert when I hear him talking. And uh, I, I could, I could go for somebody like him. And then on the Republican side, uh, I rather like Ben Sass. And uh, okay. if, if, Not uh, if, be nominated. if he were available, okay. huh? What'd you say? Not going to be nominated, but okay. Right. None of the, again, like, like my, my whole lineup would be like, bit, like bit Ben Sass, uh, maybe Nikki Haley. I'm still not, maybe, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I've, I've met her once before and I was impressed that she is an accountant by trade, uh, who's also an immigrant who, uh, was in South Carolina. There's good things there, right? So like a Ben Sass, Nikki Haley ticket would appeal to me. Um, I just finally saw what Larry Hogan looks like for the first time a couple of days ago. I watched an interview with him and I was like, that guy seems sane. That guy seems like a, like a decent bloke. And, uh, uh, that's yeah, something like that. So we'll see. As long as they accept the results of the election, that's boy, it's, uh, pretty clear. <laughs> my, my thinking on the Republican side is pretty clear. It's a, a one issue campaign. As far as I'm concerned, will you accept the results of the election? Anything else, you know, garden variety Republican stuff that I don't agree with? Like, Hey, I at least get that. That's like within the parameters of American right. liberalism in the broad sense, not liberalism like left, right, liberalism right. like you yeah. and my are both liberals. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah. we'll see. We'll see. We'll see what nice. lanes everybody picks. It'll be interesting. Well, always a pleasure to talk to you, Jeff. And uh, um, I, I continue to enjoy your newsletter. I might be wrong. I recommend people check it out. And uh, be best of luck in California now that you've, you've jumped back to the, uh, the, the West Coast. Hey, it's been fun hosting the show this week. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much, Justin, for putting me in the captain's chair. I look forward to your imminent return to this fine program. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, the great Andrew Heaton, for Dog and Pony Show Audio, albeit temporarily. Today's episode was edited by Mr. Brett Stewart. You can email the show at theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Twitter is at px3tweets. Twitch is px3live.com, podcast, px3podcast.com, merch, politicsmerch.com. Support the show with a one-time donation. Go to paypal.me slash payjury. His Venmo is justin-young-20. Cash app, 
cash sign, PX3 cash checks. Send him physical, apparently, Justin has a bank account and an old-timey checking account and a checkbook and a P.O. box. He's doing well for himself. His P.O. box is 153-184, Austin, Texas, 78715. And of course, you can always get bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. You know you want to hear about what Steve Bannon told me to piss me off when I met him and why I like John Bolton, the world's most dangerous mustache. Well, you can't get that unless you're one of the patrons of this show. Go to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. The $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcast schedule. The $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the podcast like these fine folks in the Titanic $10 tier. MC Dredio, Unsafe Decibel Level. Katie, she's a good sort. Amanda, fine gal. Ye old Pinball Shop. DP4 Bongo. Meemeister. Catherine. Vigard. Hey, Vigard. Persons familiar with the matter who say vote Gloria Young for king of the New World Order. Or Edison who says up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B-A. Thank you very much. I'm going to use that on my Nintendo. Thanks, Edison. Dr. G. Neil of Neils. Charles. Darren, we used to go fishing back in the 80s. Darren's a swell guy. You'd like Darren. I, you'd, you'd really enjoy Darren. Idris Arslanian, Blue Front and the Lenina. DL, Stephen, Chad, Nomadic Terran, Diana's Shrill Shrieks, Miranda Janelle, also a wonderful Star Wars character, Adam, Chief Andy, keep chiefing Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul is awesome, Brad, Richard, D. Laser, Just Another Pilot, Middle-Aged Mike, who loves Frank Got Abducted. Mike, you're going to make me cry. I wrote that book. Thanks, Mike. I see you there. Utah Jimmy, Montana. I don't know whether that's Utah Jimmy and he's saying Montana or his name is Utah Jimmy Montana. If his name is Utah Jimmy Montana, you should definitely run for governor as a Republican in a red state. The Jinn who says A-L-D-L-D-L, D-Really question mark, who says Chopper, Andrew, Joshua, and Sarah, my very best friends and possibly my children. Have a good week. you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.